I'm Ben Forrid. I'm Austin Letcher. And I'm Alyssa Mendel. And this is Chords Cast. This podcast is created by the team at the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford, or CORDS for short, which is a rare disease registry working to tie together patients and researchers, no matter their condition and no matter where they are in the world. In these episodes, you'll hear interviews with scientists, physicians, rare disease patients, and advocates, along with updates on our registry and ways that you can get involved. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Chords Cast. My name is Ben Forrid, as always, and it's a pleasure to have you here with me. Um, this episode is, uh, is, is kind of a cool step outside of what we've been doing. Um, we've normally uh, tried to make these episodes kind of uh, educational from a scientific research perspective, as well as give uh, a voice to a member of uh, the advocacy community, someone who represents a rare disease group, uh, and uh, give them a platform um, to speak out. And, and really, they've all been partners of the CORDS registry. So it's, um, it's a cool way to get to know some of the groups that have registries with us. Um, we also speak with a lot of kind of up and coming or just you know, groups that are just getting started out. And one of the things that we always hear is that they don't really know how to go about building a registry. And sometimes they're not um, in a position or at a place to um, step out and, and embark on that journey. Um, and, and that's totally understandable. This is a, it's quite the undertaking and it's something that shouldn't be taken lightly. And so um, we were really excited when we were approached by the uh, NIH, the uh, NCATS um, Center, uh, there's, which is the, the, the center that houses the Office of Rare Disease Research. Uh, and they, they told us that they were looking at building out this toolkit called RADAR. Um, and you know, this is something you're going to hear about a lot in this episode as we sit down with uh, Dr. Eric Sid, one of the, the folks that's been working really hard to, to kind of get that put together. It's, it's a toolkit that helps individuals understand uh, what are the steps in building your registry? What constitutes a registry? How can a registry be used? And uh, one of the themes that you'll hear kind of repeated over and over is to consider and always keep in the front of your mind, what am I trying to do with this thing? Um, some people build registries to, to uh, contact their membership later on. Some people are collecting very specific data about the disease. It's, it's, there's, for every type of registry, there are just as many reasons to go out to build one. And so um, the Radar Toolkit is a, is a really cool, uh, uh, interactive, digital way for you to kind of move through um, the process and help lay out your thoughts. Of course, I'd get fired if I didn't say that when you're ready to launch a registry that you should come to Chords um, and we will do that for you uh, for free. Um, we'll be a, a partner and work with you in, in ensuring that you can be successful. But um, the Radar Toolkit is an excellent resource that's out there and really something that we wanted to highlight um, in this episode of Chords Cast. So sit back, get ready to take notes and uh, enjoy this interview with Dr. Eric Sid from NCATS.
Hi, everybody. I'm here in lovely Bethesda, Maryland, hanging out with Dr. Eric Sid uh, from the NCATS, uh, part of the National Institutes of Health and the Office of Rare Disease Research. Uh, and we're talking today about uh, RADAR, which is the uh, Rare Disease Registry's uh, resource that they're putting together to help um, patient advocates, patient advocacy organizations that are looking to put together a registry for their community um, and, and kind of help guide their ship. Uh, Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having us here, Eric. It's uh, really nice to kind of see where the Office of Rare Disease Research is. You know, we, we use your resources quite a bit, and it's nice to, have, you know, put some faces with the names and, uh, you know, see all the rare disease uh, things going on here at the NIH. Uh, That's right. So, Eric, can you just tell us a little bit about your background and what got you involved in the rare disease community? Yeah. Uh, so, my professional background is uh, I have my uh, both my MD as well as my MHA or Master's in Healthcare Administration. Um, I'm currently a uh, what's called a Presidential Management Fellow uh, here with the federal government, which is a uh, it's a uh, federal government fellowship program uh, that's the um, main program for uh, building future leaders within the federal federal government. Oh, okay. Um, specifically, you know, I came to uh, NCATS and, uh, at the NIH, um, and specifically this office with the Office of Rare Disease Research, um, because I was at a crossroads of kind of thinking about where I wanted to go with my career. Um, I had been trained clinically, but at the same time also uh, I had done a lot of work more in the community as a, uh, in a role of more education as well as kind of community organizing. Um, had seen a lot of uh, issues that advocates face in terms of just finding access to the right information, but at the same time also being able to connect into the system and make their points heard. Um, I am myself also am a, a carrier for rare disease, so I'm uh, a carrier for thalassemia, um, which is, uh, uh, specifically for me, um, I'm, I grew up in uh, Chinatown, San Francisco, so thalassemia is a very uh, you know prevalent issue within the Chinese-American and Southeast Asian community. Um, so mm -hmm. my dad's also a carrier, and it impacts uh, quite a bit of uh, numbers of our, within our family. Wow. Thanks for that background a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, RADAR seems like a great program and a great resource moving forward, uh, but can you give us a little bit of the history on how it came to be? I think there were some some other acronyms yes. out there before RADAR. <laughs> yeah. As a federal worker, uh, we oftentimes use alphabet soups with describing programs with every type of acronym you can imagine. Um, so RADAR is a, a bit of a tortured acronym. Um, stands for Rare Disease Registry Program. Um, and basically, uh, within our office here, um, we had started work originally about nine years ago on another acronym. I'm not going to use it because you'll forget. Um, but trying to look at uh, how we can take patient registries and essentially um, make them more interoperable. And what that means is really allow them to kind of work with one another. Um, the hardest part for a lot of patient groups as far as um, thinking about patient registry in many ways is understanding their utilization, how they fit into um, research as a whole, but also, you know, even all the steps that you have to think about in terms of creating a registry. Oftentimes, um, there's so much pressure for a patient advocate to just start doing something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, it comes from a really um, well-meaning place. But the difficulty is, are you collecting the right information, the right data, or are you just collecting stuff? Uh, and what I mean by stuff is, you know, is, is it something that can be used for a purpose? Is it something that could be used for the organization? Is it something that could be used for research? Is it something that could potentially be used to... Um, produce a, a therapy for your disease community. Yeah. Um, so really, radar came about uh, as we started looking at how do we go about, um, you know, as an NIH resource, um, providing uh, resources to the community 
Um, but at the same time, doing this in a way that, you know, our, our office, um, the Office of Rare Disease Research, um, we control or we, we have to uh, monitor and um, provide resources really for up to 7,000 different diseases. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we know the feeling. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so there's a lot of rare diseases out there. And the difficulty is, in many ways, if you think about doing this from um, a back-end issue, and what I mean by back-end is if you think about this as, you know, looking at each individual registry, making that um, fit with other registries, then you're having to solve 7,000 problems. Mm -hmm. um, and it really just didn't, it wasn't a model that we could utilize um, long-term. It was, it was requiring far too much resources to take uh, each registry, take apart their data, look at their questions, look, about, look at what they're collecting, how they're collecting it, and then try to fix that all up so that they work with other registries. Um, rather than starting with this one by one, we decided to go about this from an angle of, well, if we can't solve this at the end when they have a registry and we have to fix all these different problems with data, let's provide patient groups um, information on the front end that, so that when they're going about this process, they understand a little bit more about why. Um, mm -hmm. I'll also add that, you know, this isn't something that we're doing in isolation. I mean, obviously, cords and other groups are also focused in this space. Sure. Um, I know that you guys oftentimes will mention the AHRQ, or Agency for Healthcare uh, Research and uh, Quality. Um, they have a great handbook on uh, registries. Um, our goal, in many ways, of how we came about with this idea of what we wanted to do with Radar was how do we take that the knowledge in that book, um, make it in a digestible format that a patient advocacy group would just be able to start out and say, this is exactly what I need to do to yeah. start. Yeah. And which is great because I, and I don't know how many of our listeners have uh, seen that manual, the ARC manual, but it's um, it's a... It's a big textbook. That's yeah, a, you know, two, so it, two textbooks. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I, I think anything that could be done to kind of distill that down, put it into more of a, a something you could look at on your phone, yeah. is a, is useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'll, I'll also add that you know we had another project before this that was launched about a year and a half ago. It's called the NCATS Toolkit for Patient Focused Therapy Development. Okay. So. What that is, is that's a resource that actually came about from the um, patient advocacy community. Um, mm -hmm. They requested it from us. Um, they worked heavily with us as partners in creating this resource. Mm -hmm. And it's a great uh, repository of really the different best practices and resources that patient groups currently um, would point to. So when you have, like, for example, oftentimes you'll have a, a more mature or senior um, patient leader that will oftentimes try to shepherd and you know mentor um, newer groups. They'll oftentimes point to the same resources, and we try to capture that as well as we can within that toolkit website. Um, what we're doing with Radar um, is essentially the same exact idea of toolkit, but it's an offshoot that we can pilot, test out, um, how do we make this a little bit more usable as a resource for a new patient group. Um, yeah. There were up to, I think, 150 plus different links and um, tools in the toolkit, Specifically within registries, we have 50. Sure. Um, we needed to create a system that just tells you how do you get started. You know, do you go and look through each of these resources? Again, do you go to the ARC manual, which is really that's the gold, you know, gold standard right. for building a registry. But if you're starting out and you're a parent with just uh, maybe an hour a week to spend on this, that's probably not something you're going to be able to really focus on. Yeah. So what are steps that we can provide to take all these different resources but dial in on how to get started? Yeah, so it's it's kind of a um, here's the things you consider while you're while you're dipping your toes into this building a registry type of, type of space. So, um, what do you, if you had to distill it down? You know, what would be um, you know some of the most important things that an advocacy group should consider when they're talking about collecting data about their community? Yeah, uh, and again, you know, 
data is anything. Data is everything. You know, we, when we use the word data, it can sound really intimidating. And I think that's the key to this program is trying to take um, terms like this that you might feel that, well, I, I'm, you know, what do I know? I don't have a technical background. Um, maybe I can't, I'm not someone that can look at data. Um, it's just information. So when we talk about information that's captured in a registry, um, a registry being just really a database, yeah. um, it's looking at, well, what are the type of ways that you want to ask those questions and how do we do this in a way that you're going to generate data that is has quality to it. And the reason I'm, I'm saying that is because, again, the, the biggest question to really start out with is what's the purpose of your registry? What do you want to use that for? Yeah. If all you're doing is trying to just find out um, other folks that have this disease, maybe contact other parents, um, trying to generate a Facebook group might be sufficient. Sure. The difference between a Facebook group and a registry is, well, with a Facebook group, what happens if somebody uh, quits the Facebook uh, application or leaves it as a, as a program? Um, they're no longer in your database. They're no longer in your mm -hmm. quote-unquote Facebook group or registry. Um, similarly, if you wanted to um, be able to ask other questions there, you really can't do that through a Facebook group. You can, you can kind of send out a message and hope that everyone responds, yep. but you know, you're, what you're capturing is just a bunch of different messages. So right. you're going to have to create that on an you know, Excel spreadsheet or something. Right. So when you talk about a registry, it's really, you know, it's a data, it's a database, it's really, in some ways for some people, it's an Excel spreadsheet. Um, that's the you know the, the barest uh, version of that. Yeah. Um, so really, the, again, the, the the biggest focus is what are you using this for? Right. Uh, and there are a lot of uses for for registries. Um, and you know, I think that some folks want to compile a contact list more or less just so that they can stay in touch with people. Um, Cord certainly uses the contact list of, with our registry to make people aware of research opportunities that are out there. But um, you know, what are some of the other benefits that, that people could realize by starting a registry for their community? Yeah, um, let me talk about benefits both in terms of, let's think about it you know, uh, as a broader scale. What are you trying to do as a, as a patient group again? Uh, and these are kind of, uh, when, we, when I'm talking about this, this is really something that is the foundation for why we developed uh, this radar program. Um, how do we provide you essentially the first couple of steps of what you need to do, but at the same time tell you if you want to do this, so if your goal, for example, of a registry is to organize your community. Well, that, you know, if that's the level you're looking for, what's the purpose of organizing is just to find out how many people potentially have this disease, you know, maybe where they're located. So you might want to get location, you might want to get the state or city, the country. Um, you might also want to ask information like, you know, do they have the disease themselves or are they a child and this is a parent recording the disease? Yeah. There's a lot of different questions you would want to include. So I think, you know, again, it goes back to thinking of what's the purpose. If your purpose is just starting out and trying to collect together all the different folks out there so you can start establishing a patient group, that's one thing. If you're trying to do research and if you're wanting to use this registry to promote research, well, are you trying to use this information to guide, uh, you know, referrals to a clinical trial? So uh, clinical trials are the foundation for how we do research. Um, that's how we ultimately find out what's uh, a disease causing. If a disease has this feature versus um, that's this other, you know, if you have a certain symptom, let's say you had a cough, how do we know that was caused by this disease or not? Right. You do that through capturing a lot of different people into a, a registry or a natural history study. Yeah. Um, so these clinical trials really, uh, in order to decide who actually fits in it or not, you oftentimes will need what's called inclusion or exclusion criteria. So contact registries um, are really, again, they're, you, it's just a fancy way of saying a spreadsheet or a database. Yeah. Um, 
with what you're trying to do is facilitate research, you can look at it from every level of just organizing the community to referring to a trial to recruiting into the trial. They all have the different requirements, and it's just really about what your goal is. Sure. You know, I, I think that there's a we use the word research uh, when we talk about registries as a, as a purpose for mm -hmm. building a, re a registry. But um, research takes a lot of different forms. Um, and, you know, there's the, the basic science research that uh, goes on in a lab where you're, you've got your traditional, you know, cartoonish image of a guy in a white lab coat <laughs> with crazy hair doing uh, you know, bubbling beakers and stuff. <laughs> um, but then there's also the, the clinical research side where we're talking about taking therapies uh, from a translational state and sending them into hopefully all the way to the market um, to to benefit people and I think the um, you know a lot of the listeners maybe need that a little demystified for them so so when talking about the clinical research or even the basic science in a mm -hmm. laboratory um, what role do you see from from the NIH's standpoint you know from the mm -hmm. from the government standpoint what role do registries play in approval process for therapies or the development of new therapies? Yeah, so I think, you know, you're, you're talking about a lot of different things in there. So let, let's yeah. try to break down some of that. Um, so again, I'm from uh, the NIH. I'm from specifically NCATS, which is a long acronym, uh, National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Translational sciences, you know, what are the, um, the problems when you're trying to go from one type of research? Uh, you mentioned basic science. So, you know, again, how we think of the, uh, the laboratory uh, scientists with a beaker yeah. um, to then moving up to, you know, clinical science. So maybe a, a person in a lab coat that's now in a clinic right. um, to ultimately seeing a, a drug or a therapy for a patient. Um, translational science looks at all the areas uh, between those junctions and what's preventing you to jump from one area of research to the next or one area of science to the next. Um, when you think about what uh, patient registry kind of fits in with this whole model of thinking of what are our goals for within this disease? Um, if our goal is ultimately to create some type of therapy, you know, first and foremost, before you can even create a therapy, you have to understand, like I was mentioning earlier, what are the characteristics of that disease? So yeah. oftentimes people will use this term, natural history studies. Mm -hmm. um, it's a fancy way of saying that we've done a lot of studies that show the natural course of that disease, which means that we can, you know, when you take a lot of different people that have um, the same disease and try to figure out, well, which of these features that each of these different patients have what are due to the disease itself versus what's different maybe for one patient to another and what's why do they have the symptom and why does this person do, doesn't have that symptom? Yeah. Um, so in that process, that is that studying itself of a natural history, that's stuff that's used as not only um, to understand a disease, because you know, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of a case I had recently where um, we were working with a patient advocacy group and they were really excited about gene therapy and gene editing, and they wanted to see how we can create a gene therapy for their um, disease community, which is, again, a really great uh, yeah. resource. It's a hope for a lot of us. Yes. Um, but then the problem is, you know, uh, he was mentioning that, and he also said at the same time, well, they're also doing a natural history study, but, you know, I'm much more excited about this gene therapy. And, of course, you know, I can see why. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, the, yeah. the potential for a cure or a therapy that can potentially change uh, the course of this disease, that, you know, that's exactly why all these different um, patient advocates oftentimes are involved in, uh, in their patient advocacy. Um, the problem is, unless you have enough foundational research, this natural history yeah. study data, when you're trying to say that this, uh, you know, therapy, this gene therapy, this um, drug is having an impact on a patient, you need a good foundation to, for science to really describe, well, that's making an impact or not. Yeah. If you haven't really well studied um, the characteristics of the disease, and you don't really have a good idea of the natural history, 
then it's really hard to say what's causing a difference. If you're seeing a difference because you gave this person a treatment, is that something that would have happened anyways uh, over the next several months? Because maybe uh, this disease over you know a period of months to years changes. Yeah, right. What's what's uh, what's the disease and what's the uh, maybe a side effect of the drug or or they maybe a beneficial effect of the drug, mm-hmm. um, and and. In that scenario, in a lot of scenarios, there's a cart and a horse involved, and you got to have them in the right order. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's an important uh, perspective. Thank you. Say, so, Eric, do uh, natural history studies have to have a clinical component? Is that generally the uh, consensus? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, the key here, that's a great question, Austin. I think the key here is thinking about, well, how do we go about collecting the data? Um, so oftentimes, you know, for example, uh, what I hear often from patients is, why can't they just take the stuff that a doctor was asking me during clinic and use that on my disease? There's different questions that we would ask during a, a clinical appointment or um, during the exam room um, that might be quite different than what you're asking in a natural history study or any other type of clinical trial. Um, Similarly, when you ask somebody, you know, a good example might be uh, when someone asks you how you're feeling and you say, well, um, you know, I'm having a cough. Well, what type of cough is it? How long has it been going on? Is it a dry cough? Is it a wet cough? Um, I have pain. How do you register pain? How do you identify pain? Yeah. Um, these are, you know, when you talk about a cough, it's very simple. You, you're coughing or you're not coughing. And, you know, even then, it, it, is, is can you confuse a cough with a sneeze sometimes? Maybe you've ever had that where you coughed and you did a sneeze at the same time and you weren't sure which it was. Yeah. Um, you know, pain is a really tough thing. To, it's a very subjective uh, measure to have. So oftentimes with a lot of these clinical features, um, there are ways that you have to ask as a clinician, um, you know, as a doctor talking to a patient to understand, well, what's the treatment course? Maybe what are the symptoms they have? What am I thinking about on managing for this? A research scientist, a, a research clinician scientist oftentimes, will ask similar questions, but they might have very different um, uh, thoughts as far as what they're doing with their questions. For example, uh, oftentimes clinicians will talk about if there's a clinical impact or if there's a clinical difference in what we're asking. So a research, researcher might care that your cough is lasting a certain amount of time, you know, maybe it's lasting uh, an hour and a half, um, maybe it's uh, waking you up at night or not. Um, to a, a physician that's caring for you and trying to manage your symptoms, um, we may not care if it lasted an hour versus an hour and a half, but if it woke you up at night, okay, that matters a little bit more because yeah. that's, that's something that potentially you can treat. Um, those are the differences in terms of how you would ask questions. And again, when you talk about a registry, it's really about just collecting this kind of data. So what a clinician asks versus a clinician researcher might ask can be very different. How a patient thinks about a question could also be very different. Um, the way that uh, research is interpreted downstream in terms of being used as a um, in more of a regulatory role. So I'm thinking now more for FDA and thinking about how this research might be used to potentially approve a drug. That has a different uh, requirement than research that you know a clinician might be asking because they're thinking about how they manage your symptoms or how a patient is thinking about communicating their experience or the burden of their disease to another patient. Mm-hmm. So again, this is really all about asking the goals and what's the uh, evidence burden or what's the you know evidence validity, the, what, what's the caliber of the evidence you're asking for, why are you needing that level of uh, validity? Right. Well, cords, I think oftentimes, uh, you know, we like to say that we approximate a natural history study. So I think it's important for people to recognize, okay, natural history study is really deep 
um, dive and very involved with the clinicians and, and those subject matter experts. Yeah, I mean, I think Chords is a, a great resource for people that you know haven't been um, able to create their registry yet. We're really excited to work with uh, NIH and CATS and, and Radar and, and kind of help each other uh, raise awareness for patient advocacy groups and help them demystify this registry process. But uh, is there, you know, as we kind of wind down today, is there anything, any particular message you want to give uh, the people listening today, any of the rare disease patients, those people looking for resources, um, any contact info, or where can they turn? Yeah, um, so you can always, uh, if you wanted to look at more of the resources we have, we have a number of different resources here at NCATS dedicated towards the uh, patient advocacy group space, as well as um, targeting rare diseases. Uh, so I'll mention a few, and then uh, I'll, I'll go back to thinking about some, uh, some type of uh, take-home message. Um, so the resources that we have here uh, and cats that are specific for rare diseases, so we mentioned radar. Um, you can always go to our, our general um, uh, website for NCATS, so that's ncats.nih.gov. The radar website itself, which will be launching at this uh, upcoming uh, Thursday at Rare Disease Day at NIH, um, that website is just registries.ncats.nih.gov. Um, and again, that's a, th these are all public resources, so once we go live with this, anyone can access this. Yeah. Um, we also have, uh, I mentioned the toolkit earlier, if you go to the uh, ncats.nih.gov website, you can easily find information about the toolkit. Um, we also have another resource called GARD, uh, Genetic and Rare Disease uh, Information Center. Um, that's been around since 2003, um, and basically that provides both a contact center as well as a, a website of different disease information for um, folks to that are patients or caregivers or members of the public that want to learn more about a rare disease or have questions on how to find uh, research or, uh, you know, uh, or have questions on how to enter a uh, clinical trial. Um, to go back to your, your, your remark about a take-home message, uh, you know, I think that the biggest reason why we went this route of creating a website um, uh, through Radar, uh, again, this is going to be a, a living website. This is something that we're going to continue to adapt um, and be able to build out both from contributions from within the patient community, organizations like Sanford Cords, or any of our other partners out there that want to um, participate in this. Um, but really, the, the, the underlying goal from an NIH perspective of why we built this resource is we want to make sure that you know, um, patient advocacy groups are well supported and have the right uh, values in mind to be able to create a registry that is usable for research purposes. So um, we know that your goal is that you know, you're, you're all, a lot of the different community groups out there are really busy, um, especially those groups that are you know, really just a couple of parents or even just one parent. Um, we want to, as much as we can, try to help uh, you navigate through that process. So we focus this website on really how do we provide you information to help bring uh, bridge uh, information that you have um, as a patient, your stories um, as a community, um, through a registry, be able to take that data and then combine that with what researchers want to do to help bring therapies, uh, you know, to help support the community. So um, that's essentially how we thought about this website, is we're looking at really trying to provide information on creating high-quality uh, data, and similarly, how to provide the instructions for a patient organization to be a good steward of that data. So you know, what are governance rules that can help you make sure that for your community, you're being a good partner? Yeah, and, and, and like we were talking about earlier, Eric, I think that our, 
our goals here align really well uh, for what we're trying to provide to the, the patient community. And as we got a sneak peek at the radar website, um, we were able to take a look through it um, beforehand. Austin and I were kind of giving each other high fives because uh, we were we were checking all the boxes. <laughs> so we're you know we're happy to say Accords is following the guidelines set up by the radar. So that's a, a big plus for us. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much today. It's a tremendous resource that you guys offer. And uh, Cords is just really excited to uh, align ourselves with you and, and help out in any way we can. And, and especially to the listeners today, if you're listening and you don't know what a patient registry is or uh, you want to learn more, we definitely encourage you to, to Google Radar or Google Cords and talk to one of us uh, and we'll help you get your, your registry set up. Absolutely. Thanks again, Eric. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you. so much for listening. The theme music for Chordscast is borrowed with permission from Scott Holmes's song, So Happy. To learn more about Sanford Research and our registry chords, visit us at sanfordresearch.org slash chords. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your questions, comments, stories, or feedback to chords at sanfordhealth.org. Find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Sanford Chords. The content of Cordscast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. We'll see you next time on Cordscast.